So what's in your life right now that you need to overcome? Uh, what is the challenge that you need to conquer? What is it right now that you have going on in your life and you go, man, I need to accomplish this in order to be an overcomer? I want you to think about it for a moment. And then I want you to hold on to it for just a few minutes. And we're going to jump into this idea of how we can be an overcomer in a particular area of our life. Uh, today is week seven of the other 316s for our summer series uh, from the Word of God. Uh, John 316 is probably the most famous verse in Scripture. And it's one that tells our story and God's story and how they intersect. And it's great, uh, a great verse. Uh, but we're going through some of the other 316s of the Bible this summer. And so we've went through several of them. And if you missed any of the messages, you can watch them on the River Ridge Church app and, and get kind of caught up for the other great passages of Scripture. Uh, last year, Andy Toole, our teaching pastor at Taze Valley, uh, was looking about doing this series this summer. And he said, you know, some of these verses are pretty good and they'd be pretty easy. And some of the other ones aren't quite as easy to speak on. And then at some point when we were talking in his office, he read Judges 3.16. And I went, oh, man, I, I want to speak on that one. I said, it's, it's part of a fascinating story. And so here's what Judges 3.16 says. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. Wow, what a moving and inspirational verse, right? I mean, you just you could walk away today and go, man, thanks, Tim, thanks so much. I've got what I need for the week. Uh, that I'm ready to roll. Okay. Now, this verse in and of itself doesn't uh, say much of anything significant. But when we get the rest of the story, man, it plays a key role in the life of Ehud and what's going on. So before we dive into the story, we need to understand a little bit of what's happening in the book of Judges. And by the way, if you've never read the book of Judges, it is amazing. It is fascinating uh, the way that uh, the story is told of the nation of Israel during this time period in history. And so it's incredible. I want us to jump into a quick history of the nation of Israel so we understand the context of the book of Judges. The nation of Israel was started when God called Abraham apart. And God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and your descendants. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob then had 12 sons. And one night when Jacob and God were going back and forth, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then his 12 sons became known as the 12 tribes of Israel as the, the family grew. One of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And God was with Joseph, and through many different circumstances and many different trials, uh, Joseph rose to the rank of prime minister of Egypt. And so Joseph then moved his whole family, his dad, his brothers, and all their, all their kids down to Egypt. And at the beginning of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, it says that a Pharaoh came into power who did not know Joseph. And at that point, he was scared of the children of Israel, and so he enslaved them. And he enslaved them for a very long time. And finally, uh, God raised up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and to go to the promised land. And Moses was a great leader. Uh, he was just phenomenal. He led the nation of Israel for around 40 years. But because of something that he had done, he did not get to lead them into the promised land. 
Joshua, who had been the general underneath of Moses, had that opportunity. And he became the leader of the children of Israel when Moses died. And so then he got to lead them into the promised land. They then began to conquer the land. They battled the pagan nations and they destroyed them. And and they eventually then divided the land up into the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Joshua died. So far, Israel has had two key leaders. They've had Moses and they've had Joshua. And these guys were phenomenal leaders. I mean, they're just incredible. The way that they led the nation of Israel and the way that they uh, brought them along to this point of being in the promised land. But after that, there was not an individual leader for them. And so the nation of Israel became very tribal in the way that it functioned. And so each tribe did kind of their own thing. So now we come to the book of Judges. And in chapter 1, we're told that they failed to drive out all of the pagan people. So they failed to get rid of all of them, and they gave God a lot of excuses. Uh, God had given them the land, but they still had to do some work to drive the people out. But they made up excuses, and they gave reasons as to why they couldn't drive the people out. So God eventually said, okay, I'm not going to drive them out for you. They're going to be in the land with you. And so these pagan people that aren't supposed to be here, I'm leaving them because I'm going to use them to test you. And I'm going to use them to teach you to trust me during times of war. And so now we've got the nation of Israel and all the tribes with these little pockets of pagan people and cities that are there. So God's chosen people, multiple pagan nations, all living in the same area. But there's no strong leader. And the nation starts going through a vicious cycle for several hundred years. And so the book of Judges records this cycle and it goes a little bit something like this. They forget about God. And so then God, they start worshiping idols. They start worshiping other pagan gods. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you over to that nation. And so they they would be conquered. And that other nation would come in. They'd conquer them. They would make them be their servants. Uh, They would also make them pay tribute or taxes. And so it was a very uh, controlled time for the nation of Israel by these other nations. Well, then the people would repent and they'd cry out to God and say, God, please deliver us in. God would raise up a deliverer, or sometimes called a judge. And so God would raise up this judge, and he would help, and they would be delivered from this pagan nation, and there'd be a period of rest in the land. And then the cycle would start all over again. And the people would forget about God. They'd worship idols. Uh, God would put them under suffering from this other nation. And then they'd pray to God, and God would raise up a deliverer. And there'd be peace in the land. And then the cycle starts again. And it went through this all throughout the book of Judges. So let's get into the scripture passage of Judges chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation or the NLT if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles. Judges 3.12 says this. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. We see the cycle start up again here. The Israelites did evil. They were worshiping other gods. And so Eglon defeated them and took control. And he controlled them for 18 years. Now, I want us to get an understanding of what this was like, okay? Get a real good grasp on this. This area of Israel was controlled by a selfish, evil, self-indulgent king who did what he wanted to do, took from the people of Israel what he wanted to take from them. And so that we understand this was happening for 18 years. So if you're in high school, this is all that you've ever known. You've known nothing but the control of this king. If you're under 40... 
Your entire working career has been worked to serve and to please this pagan king. And if you're a grandparent, you've seen him come and take your grandkids and do despicable things to them. And make them serve him in unreasonable ways. That's what you've dealt with for 18 years. And that's what this nation of Israel has went through. During these 18 years, you would think that someone would have thought, we should probably do something about this. Or at least someone needs to do something about this. But during that time, no one did anything about King Eglon and the Moabites. And no one was an overcomer for the nation of Israel. I asked you some questions a few minutes ago, and I want to come back to them now. What is in your life right now that you need to overcome? What is that challenge that you're currently facing that you need to conquer? What is there in your life right now that you need to accomplish to be an overcomer? You've had a few minutes to think about it and and to hopefully arrive at something. Uh, Maybe it's a project at home that your spouse has asked you to do. Uh, Maybe it's a day that you promised to spend with your kids and you told them, man, I'll spend all day playing with you. Uh, Maybe it's taking time in the morning to spend with God. Maybe it's sitting down and doing a budget so that you can get a handle on your finances. Maybe it's a project at work that you need to tackle. Maybe it's a conversation with a friend that you need to have. Now that you've thought about it, I want us to dive just a little bit deeper. And I want us to ask a few more questions. What's keeping you from taking action? What is there right now that's preventing you from doing what you need to do? What is there in your life right now that needs done, but you aren't doing it? Here's what I know. I know that the battle that we often face is actually inside of us. Uh, The battle that we have is going on within us. And it's what's taking place up here that needs to be overcome. So that we can do what we need to do out here and accomplish what we need to do out here. And one of the best ways to win this battle within us, the battle that's going on inside our own heads is this. Tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth. When you look at your situation and you look at your circumstances, what are you telling yourself? What are you saying inside your own head? What do you tell yourself is going to determine whether you take action and accomplish something or whether you do nothing? Whether you continue to say, man, someone should do something about this or whether you're an overcomer. For the rest of this morning, we're going to focus in on Ehud. Uh, whom we read about in our 316 for this week. In verse 15, Ehud is first mentioned in the book of Judges. And we're going to see that he is a man of action. And we're going to look at how he took action and what he did to overcome. And as we walk through this story, we're going to see some things that we need to tell ourselves so that we can take action and so that we can overcome. So let's get back to the scripture in verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, The Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. Now, there are a lot of details here in this story today that are very significant, and so we're going to unpack them. And First of all, the people cry out to God, finally. They cry out to God for a deliverer. So as they've cried out to God, uh, this is just part of that cycle. And what happens next? We see that God raises up a deliverer uh, to rescue Israel. And his name is Ehud. And we read that Ehud was left-handed. And this was unusual, especially at this time in history in the nation of Israel. But it seems to indicate, the scripture here for the the Hebrew word seems to indicate that Ehud was left-handed because something was wrong with his right hand. 
And we don't know whether it was possibly, whether it's possibly been injured or whether it may have been withered from birth. But the scriptures seem to indicate that something didn't work right with his right hand. So he was left-handed because he had to be. Now, he had a disability, but it didn't stop him. And he could have used this as an excuse or used this excuse as a reason not to take any action. You know, this is easy for us to do as well, isn't it? We, we have a reason that then we turn into an excuse for not taking action. And we hold on to that excuse. And man, it just keeps us held back. And we want to say it was this or it was that or it was somebody else or something. But in essence, it was really us who was holding ourselves back. And Ehud could have looked at his situation and his circumstances. And he easily could have come up to the conclusion that he wasn't worthy of delivering anyone. He could have determined that he was not capable of producing a victory. But that's not what he did. He did not allow his limitations to handicap what he could accomplish. So what are you telling yourself about your limitations or your circumstances? What are you saying? What you tell yourself is going to determine what action you take. So you need to tell yourself the truth. Here's the first of three things that you need to say. Number one, say, I am uniquely created by God. You see, Ehud had a disability. And it was actually going to be an advantage for him. But at this point in time, he didn't know it. He didn't grow up his whole life going, oh, man, this is going to be great when I get older. Right? He grew up with this disadvantage. How God has created you is going to allow you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. He's created you uniquely, just as you are. He has made you the way that he wanted you to be. Often people can become victims of circumstances or victims of their limitations. And they wallow around in self-pity. And they miss out, on what, miss out on what God has planned for them. And what God has designed them for. They miss out on what that he wants them to do. And they are victims instead of overcomers. But when we recognize that we are uniquely created by God. When we recognize that, we're then at the place of accepting that he has something planned for us. And when we fail to recognize that we are uniquely created by God, it's very easy for us to fall into the comparison trap. And then we're not able to accomplish as much as someone else. And so we don't even try. And rather than accomplishing what God designed us for, we're stuck accomplishing nothing because we don't think we are as good as someone else. I had this experience 25 years ago when I was in college and I played basketball in college at Appalachian Bible College. Uh, it was a small school. It didn't give out any scholarships. It didn't do any recruiting. Uh, in the four years that I was there, there was only one year uh, that we actually had enough people that we had to cut somebody, okay? So tryouts were pretty much, if you tried out, you were on the team except for my freshman year. So that's the school that I went to and that's the basketball team I played for. And we were fairly competitive with other Bible colleges. Uh, I'd played my first two years of college and I got quite a bit of playing time during my sophomore year. And then we rolled around to my junior year, and we got in a point guard as a freshman who was phenomenal. He was an excellent basketball player. And I started comparing myself to him. And as I compared myself to him, I knew I wasn't ever going to see the court. Okay, he was that good. I wasn't going to make it onto the court uh, for any game time. And I looked at that, and so I came up with some excuses. I told myself I was too busy. Uh, I told myself I had, didn't have enough time and too many things going on and my grades mattered and I came up with this huge list and I didn't play. The reality is, he was faster than I was. He could shoot better than I could. He could dribble better than I could. He could pass better than I could. Okay, he was a better basketball player than I was. 
But what I didn't take into account was what else I could bring to the team. And I didn't take that into account and I didn't consider that. And this freshman point guard lost his grades at the end of the first semester, which meant he was ineligible to play the second half of the season. And see, God had created me with something that this other guy needed. I had an ability to study well and to help other people know how to learn to study so they could pass classes, so they could do well in school. And I could have taken the time to tutor him, to spend with him, to help him so that he would have stayed eligible. But I didn't do it. I didn't do anything at all to help him out. And that's what we learn when we play the comparison game. When we compare ourselves to others, everybody loses. And this is why we need to tell ourselves the truth. I am uniquely created by God. Would you say this with me, please? I am uniquely created by God. Thank you. Let's keep going in the story. Here is our 316. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He had a plan. He made a double-edged dagger. The Hebrew word here tells us it was a short sword, probably 12 to 18 inches long. And, and as he, it was just short enough that he could strap it to his right thigh. Now, here's the significance of Ehud being left-handed. Most people were right-handed, and they would strap their sword to their left side, and then they would draw their sword across their body like that. But he was left-handed. So he strapped his sword to the right side, so when the bodyguards of the king came to check him, they would check where they normally checked, on the left side. And there was nothing there. And so he had a concealed weapon that he was able to carry with him. And this is important that, that we understand that. So let's continue on in verse 17. It tells us this. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Okay? This is important for us to know as well. So here's a picture of what I think King Eglon may have looked like. Right. Every time I read this story, I think of Jabba the Hutt. I can't help it. It's always what I think of. All right. So let's keep going in this passage and see what else verse 18 has to tell us. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. And he came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So as Ehud and his traveling party reached the, they were heading home after delivering the tribute, and they come to a place called Gilgal. Okay? They'd reached that place, and Ehud stops, and he sends everybody else on home. You all go on home. I've got something I've got to go do. And so he turns around then and goes back to see the king. So what was it about Gilgal that was, was so significant that said, you need to do something? And here's what it was. Um, you know, he's had this short sword, this dagger. He's had it strapped him the whole time. He went and he saw the king. They gave the tribute, and yet he still did nothing with it. And they're walking along, and he decides to go back. And Gilgal is a special place for the children of Israel. It is the place where they first crossed into the promised land. And they set up 12 memorial stones. They set up these huge rocks and made a memorial to God to commemorate what God had done in His faithfulness through their time in the desert and His faithfulness to bring them into the promised land. And now Ehud is passing this place in Gilgal and he looks over and he sees stone idols there. And he had to know the significance of Gilgal. And it triggers something inside of him. He says, whoa, wait. I'm going to have to do something. I'm reminded of God's faithfulness, and he had to take some action. For the 18 years of oppression, people have been saying, someone needs to do something. And now Ehud had said, this needs to be done. But up until this point, he hadn't taken any action. And he actually had been with the king and had just walked away. But when he gets to Gilgal, something changes. 
Something happens and he has to take some action. So here's what we need to tell ourselves. We need to say, I have to do this. I have to do this. He moved from saying someone needs to do something to this needs to be done to now saying I have to do this. And he turns around and he heads back. We can very easily have, what can very easily happen to us is that we can be forgetful about what needs to be done. And we can take no action. We can have the best of intentions to sit down and to have that conversation. Uh, we have the desire to reconcile that relationship. We have the need to serve our spouse. But then we don't do it. And we forget about it. And the pace of life then causes us to push it off our plate. And off our minds until something causes us to remember. And something causes us to say, I have to do this. I can't keep putting it off. And sometimes when we, when we remember, we may have a lack of urgency. We just lack that, that need to, to do it. And we need to schedule that appointment, but we think, I'll get to it next week. We need to have that conversation with that person, but we say, yeah, I'll, I'll see them when I see them. I'll get to that project eventually. And we have no sense of urgency. So we need to tell ourselves, I have to do this. Would you say this with me, please? I have to do this. Thank you. So let's move from saying someone needs to do something about this to saying I have to do this. Let's take ownership of the responsibility to get it done. And when we get to this sense of urgency, it's then that we cannot wait any longer to take action and it will move us to do what we need to do. So let's get back to Ehud and King Eglon. Ehud has just come back to see the king and told him that he has a secret message for him. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. And then verse 20 says, Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. Eglon told everyone to be quiet. He told everyone to get out of the room and to leave him alone. And it was just Eglon and Ehud alone in this cool upstairs room. Now normally a king wouldn't leave himself alone with his enemy. But there's probably a couple things that came into play here. And one is, um, if he saw that he was with a one-handed man, he thought, ah, he's no threat to me. So it's okay. Or the other thing that he may have been thinking was, hey, Ehud has a very special message as a spy to give to me. Or he has uh, a secret bribe that he wants to give me. Whatever he was thinking, he had everybody leave. And it was just the two of them together, Eglon and Ehud. And Eglon let Ehud get close to him. And I think I figured out what a special message was. I think his special message was, I'm going to gut you like a pig. Now, I don't know that to be the facts, okay? It's just what I think. Ehud now worked his plan, okay? He took action, and as he approached King Eglon, he stood up, and Ehud quickly pulled the dagger from his right thigh from underneath his clothes and stabbed him right in the belly. And we're told that it went all the way in, and I can imagine the sound of the fat sucking the entire sword into his belly sounding something like this. <clears throat> yeah, I know. This is a very gross story. It gets grosser, though, okay? So just hang with me here for a moment. All right. We're told that his bowels emptied, or literally that the dung came out. 
And so I, I, I like the scriptures, the way they record, the way that things happened, and, and the details of it. And again, it just helps me to realize that the scriptures are real, real people and real events. Uh, if you haven't read the book of Judges, again, I highly encourage you. Uh, it's amazing with the stories that are in there. So read uh, the book of Judges. Well, Ehud then, he walks over to the door, he closes the door, and he locks the door. Let's look at these next couple of verses. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. Eglon's servants come to the door. They find it locked, and they wait. And finally, one's like, wow, my goodness, king. Like, what's going on in there? Please light a candle or something. Wow. Like, this stuff's making my eyes water. And so they're standing outside the door, and they're waiting. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And they waited so long that Scripture indicates they actually became embarrassed that they were standing out there waiting that long. And so finally, one of them says, let's go get the key. So they go and they get the key and they unlock the door. And then they saw the king dead on the floor with blood and dung everywhere. And Ehud is nowhere to be found. He's long gone. He had split and gone down the latrine. So let's pick back up with the scripture passage here in verse 26. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. When Ehud got back to where some of the Israelites are, he blew the ram's horn and he sounded the call to arms. And the people came out of the hills and they followed him. And then notice what he says here again in verse 28. He says this, he says, Follow me, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. Man, I feel like I can hear the confidence in his voice. I feel like I can hear him just saying, man, come on guys, let's go. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't take any credit for what happened. He gives the credit to God. He doesn't say, I just killed Eglon. No. He says, the Lord has given you victory over Moab. This guy's just risked his life and taken out the king, and yet the only mention of himself is to say, follow me. In other words, let's go. We have Moabites to kill. And Ehud had a good plan again. He went to the Jordan River, they cut it off the passageway back to Moab, and they started killing the Moabites, and they killed 10,000 of the best Moabite warriors. And Israel that day was delivered from Moab. They actually conquered Moab that day, and they had peace for 80 years. They had a lifetime of peace in Israel, 80 years worth, because one man took action. One man was an overcomer. And here's the third thing that we need to tell ourselves when we are battling. We need to say this. I will give God the glory. That's what Ehud did. He gave God the glory for the victory. You see, God took what could have been a weakness and he used it 
And God showed that he can still achieve victory in spite of Ehud's weakness. God could take a weakness and turn it into a victory. Sometimes in our lives, our insecurities about ourselves uh, cause us not to take action. And they prevent us from giving God the glory. And insecurity often shows up in one of two ways. It can paralyze us and keep us from taking action out of fear. Uh, The second way that it shows up is through pride. And, And this is my struggle. I mean, rather than acknowledging my insecurities, I cover them up. And I I cover them up and I hide them by being proud of what I can do. And I call attention to myself and I call attention to my accomplishments. Rather than acknowledging my insecurities and rather than acknowledging my weaknesses. And it's what I do and I I talk about myself and I talk about my accomplishments. It's one of the struggles that I have to give God the glory. But isn't it refreshing when someone has the confidence to say, God did this. God gets the glory for what happened. It's not about me. It's about him. He's the one who did it. Not me. Man, when you give God the glory, you're setting the example for someone else to follow. You're helping to point others to him. Uh, You're helping them to pause and to think about how God has worked through their life. And how God has worked in them and used their weaknesses as well to give himself glory. And it's in those moments that we recognize, man, God works despite our weaknesses. So let's tell ourselves the truth that I will give God the glory. Would you say this with me, please? I will give God the glory. Thank you. So what's the one thing you need to do? And what's preventing you from taking action? Let's be overcomers. Let's win the battle within ourselves. And let's tell ourselves the truth. And let's say, I am uniquely created by God. And recognize that God made you to be the way he wanted you to be. And we can thank him for that. Let's say, I have to do this. And recognize the urgency that motivates us to take action. And then let's say, I will give God the glory. And recognize that God is the one who gives us the strength to be an overcomer. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for loving us. And God, we thank you for what you do in our lives and and the opportunities that you give us each and every day. And I pray, God, that we would realize what you're working in our lives to accomplish. And God, how you want us to be a part of this. And God, I pray that we would see uh, how you can use our weaknesses as an opportunity to serve you. And that, God, it's during those times of weakness that you're the one who gets all the glory. And may we always seek to give you glory. God, I pray that you'd motivate us to take the action we need to in each area of our life. God, we're grateful for your many blessings, and we thank you for who you are. We love you, and we praise you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, and amen.